Hello and welcome to the Lotox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 101. Uh, here's to another hundred amazing conversations. Thank you everyone for joining me for the first hundred. I am very, very excited to kick into our second hundred. I had no idea where this podcast was going to go two years ago when I started it, and um, and I think it's united us over how broad a range of topics we can be interested in as conscious, aware individuals on our time on earth. And um, and I just love that the feedback is always, thank you for such a beautiful, big variety of topics, because, you know, there's lots of interesting things to talk about. And uh, yeah, I just love bringing it to you guys every week. Anyway, to stop me rambling, I'm going to jump straight into who's supporting our show for the next couple of weeks. We have the wonderful Republica Organic. Uh, They are doing a beautiful and huge giveaway of a year's worth of coffee and 30% off their entire range on their online store. So all you have to do to win that coffee is uh, jump onto the show notes today or next week, but do it today so you don't forget, and just say why you'd like to win the coffee. And last time we ran this with the Republica guys, what I loved was someone entered and shared a really heartfelt story, then another person was going to enter, jumped onto the show notes, started writing her entry, and they said, actually, you know what? No, that person deserves it more than any of us here. You know, they've been through some really rough times, and I want her to win. I could not have anyone else win that uh, competition. It was just such a beautiful, um, random act of internet kindness. I just loved it. So please do enter, share whatever you'd like to share as to why coffee would really help you out for the next year, especially if it were free. And good luck to everyone. Now, 30% off on the entire range. Obviously, you can jump onto their website from the show notes. Um, But they sell everything in packs of six. And I always like to say that's because they're a big supermarket brand and and, um, really sort of pioneered the availability of fair trade coffee in uh, Australia's largest supermarkets. And they did that because Jacqueline is passionate about mainstream growth of awareness in fair trade practices in um, some of the world's largest uh, used consumed goods like coffee Uh, You know, chocolate's another great example of of very little transparency in the past and still struggling to be, um, to have brands be super transparent about um, cocoa farming. And coffee farming was um, something, uh, cocoa bean, uh, sorry, coffee bean farming was something that really um, struck Jacqueline on a trip back to Colombia one day when she realised that coffee in Colombia wasn't so good, but Colombian coffee everywhere else was great. So she realised that as a country, they were shipping out all their best stuff, they were underpaying workers, uh, and she was horrified by that and um, left her career in journalism at the ABC and decided to um, give fair trade organic coffee a name back in 2004. So um, I I just, I love the brand. Uh, I love Jacqueline, she's a dear... um, personal friend and uh, collaborating together to bring about more awareness is something that is uh, just an absolute pleasure. So do jump onto the website. If a packet of six, you know, um, six coffee beans is too much for you, jump on with a friend, share the postage, catch up for a coffee, let's say, and um, split the order. Uh, Great for schools and offices as well. 
Now, uh, what did I want to tell you about that was important before I kicked into today's very special show? Yes, so the Pregnancy and Motherhood Summit is coming up. It's around the corner. This is a wonderful summit put on by uh, a a woman that I met through, Dr. Alyssa um, Song, um, and we all caught up, Hiba, myself and Alyssa, and took our kids on what we thought was going to be a Bondi to Bronte walk, but we actually got as far as the first turn where there was this huge flat rock of um, flat bed of rocks that the kids, the older kids, Hiba's little one is still small, but um, they all just ended up playing for an hour and we ended up chatting. Uh, but I absolutely loved Hiba's philosophies on healing health, protecting the women in our society through the journey of pregnancy and those early uh, years of motherhood where we really need to do a lot of conscious work to rebuild body resilience, mental resilience. And it's something that's not focused on enough. And then she reached out and said, look, I'm doing a summit on uh, pregnancy and motherhood, really focusing on that journey from being pregnant to becoming a parent and, um, and how we protect our bodies, how we protect our home environments, how we build resilient health, both mentally and physically. Would you like to be a part of it? Hello, of course. So I'm on the summit, obviously, talking about all things low-tox, and you have all the details in the show notes to jump on and register. And, uh, and basically, you receive everything for free as you listen to it live on the summit. And don't panic if you miss one or two lectures that you really wanted to hear, because they always do these like comeback weekends at the end where you can listen to everything for a few hours. So um, I find them to be incredible value and I'm, I'm really excited about this summit. It's got some incredible experts. Dr. Alyssa is joining us on there. Um, Dr. Ben Lynch is on there. Uh, some really amazing people and I'll share some more information over time. Now, uh, just a little reminder, the book is available in the UK. If you haven't grabbed it, you can either jump online to Amazon uh, or you can pop into hopefully any bookshop. I, I've seen people posting from bookshops, which is really exciting. Um, and a little mention to everybody, please, if you have bought the book from somewhere online, or even if you haven't, you wanted to leave a review on an online bookshop website, I would love a five-star review, a little line about how it's impacted you, what you've enjoyed about the book. Uh, this helps people who don't know the work that I do to help support you guys in your low-tox goals, know that, hey, that might be a good book to pick up. So reviewing is such an important piece of supporting a new book in the world I'm discovering, and I appreciate everybody who takes the time to jump onto Amazon or onto Booktopia or Book Depository and leave a little review. I really, really appreciate it. US peeps, Canada peeps, you can pre-order it from Amazon over in the US Uh, or in a couple of Canadian outlets as well, and it'll ship September 4, which is literally around the corner. And uh, and you know what Amazon is like. The more Amazon sees that something's popular, the more it'll say, as recommended, or people who got this got that. So uh, these pre-order stages are really, really important um, for authors to get their work out into the world, and I appreciate all of our US listeners um, jumping in and, uh, and grabbing yourselves a copy on Amazon so that you are first shipped, because we had a situation in Australia where we had to go to reprint two weeks after um, the first release, and I don't want anybody who's really looking forward to the book to miss out. Now... I've said all my stuff, so I'm going to let an incredible human do the rest of the talking. Well, I'll be doing a bit of talking, but Professor Will Steffen will be doing most of the talking in today's show. Wow, what a guy. 
Um, it is so amazing to find such a prolific scientist who has the gift of communicating these complex things in ways that you and I can understand and in ways that we can feel we can actually do something tangible to move the needle on this whole climate change fiasco. Professor Will Steffen is a climate change expert. He's a researcher at the Australian National University in Canberra. He was on a panel of experts supporting the Multi-Party Climate Change Committee. He served as a science advisor to the Australian Department of Climate Change and Energy Efficiency and was the chair of the Antarctic Science Advisory Committee. From 1988 to 2004, Professor Will Steffen served as the executive director of the International Geosphere Biosphere Program, which was an international network of scientists studying global environmental change based in Stockholm, Sweden. And his research interests span a broad range within the fields of climate change and earth system science with an emphasis on sustainability, climate change and the earth system. He's authored numerous publications on climate science and I just feel so lucky that um, after reaching out to the Climate Council, um, Professor Stefan put himself forward to have a chat with me to really clear up a lot of this confusion. You know, the media can have a debate about things uh, often um, leading us down some primrose paths of um, mistruths and, and there are some incredible journalists obviously sharing exactly what's going on straight from the scientists' mouths and, uh, and what today's chat does hopefully is help you understand how you can play a bigger role in your day-to-day -day, as well as how you can contribute more effectively to those who are playing a bigger game um, in activism because I think a lot of us might not feel like we can step into an activist role um, but aren't quite sure how to then support the people who are in the most effective ways. And, and I really feel like today we not only um, demystify some of the confusing points of climate change based on conflict in, in what we can read online and who's saying what, but also um, know what to do. So I hope you enjoy my chat with Professor Stefan as much as I enjoyed having it. Hello, Will. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks, Alex. That is good. And I'm really excited that you're here to join me. I think uh, climate change is something so many of us are passionate about and we kind of know we need to be doing something. But what I hope from our chat today is that by the end, people see a much clearer path to what our day-to-day -day lives caring about climate issues can look like. So we feel proactive and so we feel like we're part of the solution. How does that sound as an end goal for today? Yeah, absolutely. That awesome. Now, let's start by finding out a little bit about how you came to be a climate scientist. What, what, what's happened over the trajectory of your career to, to land you where you are today with the Climate Council? Yeah, really good question. I originally started life as a chemist. That's mm -hmm. what my, my doctorate degree is in. Uh, but in 1990, I had a chance to join a um, new, very exciting international research program uh, its official name was, was pretty much an awful mouthful. It was <laughs> International Geosphere Biosphere Program. Mm -hmm. But the short and easy to understand name, uh, name was A Study of Global Change. So uh, at that time, there really uh, weren't people who um, studied or, or did degrees in climate change or earth system science or something like that. We all came from disciplines such as chemistry or physics or ecology or biology or geology or something like that. Right. 
and so this this was an international program that uh, really brought together about uh, we figured about ten thousand scientists from around the world from all sorts of disciplines, and the job was to actually put disciplinary knowledge together to understand something as complicated as how the Earth works and how humans are changing it. So I got started really working on the land part of the Earth system, or the scientific name would be terrestrial ecosystems, um, and that went on for about eight or nine years. And then in ni- 1998, I became a director of the entire program um, and was based in Stockholm, Sweden for six and a half years. And then I really had to learn um, Earth system science in its entirety. So that's really how my uh, my career path has, has taken me to to studying really climate in the context of, of earth system changes. And what were some of the things that sort of bowled you over in what you were learning over the years there before it was defined as a science in itself? Yeah, I think one of the really interesting things is um, when you um, look at the behavior of the earth system in the past, and we had a program within uh, the bigger IGBP program that studied uh, past global changes, uh, it was really interesting to see how um, different the Earth could be, even in the recent past, obviously starting with, with ice ages, mm. uh, which aren't that long ago. The last ice age uh, really only started ending about 20,000 years ago, um, and that was a vastly, vastly different climate uh, than what we see today. And one of the things that really bowled me over was uh, the, the question I often ask people is, what do you think the temperature difference was between uh, the last ice age or any ice age uh, and the warm period we're in now, and most people say, oh, 20 or 25 degrees. And the answer is four degrees. So, wow. So, so that's what that's telling you is that when we talk about a two or three or four degree temperature rise, we're talking about massive changes to the earth in terms of its geological history. Uh, and I think people don't really understand how significant the changes we're driving to the to the Earth system really are. So I think the thing that really bowled me over more than anything else was working with scientists who studied climate changes in the past and what past climate looked like and how different it was, and then trying to translate that to say, if we had that today, how would humans cope with that? Mm. Because one of the naysayer comments that you always see is, yeah, but the climate's been changing forever. You know, Why do we think that we have something to do with it this time? Um, so I guess, you know, like, what do you, what are your favorite things to say to that person who, who takes that tack? Uh, quite clearly, um, what I, what, what I would say is we actually know, um, what drives the changes in climate naturally, particularly in the more recent past. Mm. And, and we know very clearly that, um, the oscillation between ice ages and warm periods, which has been going on for about 1.2 million years, which is, in fact, the entire time that humans have been on the planet, certainly modern humans, we've only been on for about two ice age warm period cycles. And we know what, what does that. Uh, and that's um, changes to the Earth's orbit around the sun, which act as, as a trigger. And that's why you see a regular heartbeat-like pattern every thousand years we go through this cycle. Uh, and that's because of our orbit. But the interesting thing is that only acts as a trigger about – 80 or 85 percent of the actual hard work of moving the earth out of an ice age to a warm period is done by internal processes in the earth system so-called feedbacks that involve the um uh, evolve ice and involve the carbon cycle and indeed that's just getting to the work we're doing now is to saying humans are now driving changes in those feedback processes so um those feedback processes 
uh, would not be operating the way they are today without human pressures. There's a wealth of evidence to show that. Oh, so absolutely. I say to the naysayers, sorry, you've completely missed the science. Uh, we understand really well why the Earth changes naturally, particularly for the last million years or so, and we understand extremely well why it's changing in the last couple of centuries. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. So really, was it the Industrial Revolution that, that kicked us all off onto this um, this hyperspeed human-influenced climate change? Actually, actually not really. Okay. Uh, that, that's an interesting question because when you actually graph a lot of changes to the human side of things, including um, CO2 emissions, uh, including population, including communication, all sorts of things. Mm. And, and go back to 1750, which was just before uh, the start of the Industrial Revolution in England uh, in the late 1700s. What you find is that, yes, there were slow increases in population, GDP, uh, emissions, and so on, but they just skyrocketed after um, about 1950. So the rate of increase increased dramatically. Uh, after 1950, roughly. Wow, okay. So really 1950 was when it, it went nuts. Yeah. That's yeah. interesting because that's when plastics became everyday used items. Yes, mm. and aluminium foil and all sorts of things you start to see mm. in the technological um, strata that are forming today. Um, now, that mid-20th century time period, the historians actually knew that before we were system scientists did. Um, there's a, a historian named John McNeil from the U.S., he wrote a beautiful book uh, in the year 2000 called Something New Under the Sun, which defined us humans. And the something new was what happened in the mid-20th century. Mm. And it wasn't really technology. It was the institutions and economic systems that allowed us to greatly uh, increase the use of, of fossil fuels, all sorts of new technologies and so on. So it was really a societal shift post-World War II, which unlocked a lot of nascent technical capability which was building from the uh, industrial revolution right and for me it feels like this really was the time the birth of um marketing the birth of throwaway society the birth of the shift towards fast values as opposed to slow values a lot of stuff happened in that 1950 1960 kind of time that um that's Gosh, when you think about it, like you draw all the parallels and you're like, of course, oh, God, yeah. Yeah, and I think, no, those are very good observations and I think they're all part of the same huge sweeping socioeconomic changes mm. and changes. And if you like, that really greased the wheels of then uh, production and consumption, um, which, which, of course, the, the byproducts of which are greenhouse gas emissions, plastics, aluminium foil, massive amounts of concrete as we urbanize and all sorts of things like this. Um, which which just really shot up quite remarkably after the uh, Second World War. Right. And so so that happens in the 50s and 60s. And then so what do you guys start to see as you plot out what's happening to the climate from then on? Well, if you look at global average surface temperature, what you see um, is certainly the start of a very strong trend probably around 1970-ish. Mm -hmm. uh, and that makes sense because it's going to lag a little bit uh, how fast we're putting uh, greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And in fact, in, in 1950, there are only about 350, uh, 315 sorry, parts per million, uh, and that was over a pre-industrial baseline of 280. That would have affected the climate a little bit, but not greatly. Uh, but we've increased now approaching 100 parts per million 
since 1950, uh, and that's and you can see that in the temperature rise, really starting around 1970. It's it's rising now at a rate of about um, uh, 1.7 degrees per century or 0.17 uh, degrees per decade, which is extremely rapid when you look at uh, the last 12,000 years. Mm. And when you look at that ice age. Like, you know, that four-degree shift is really something that has stuck in my mind from the moment you said it. It's not that big, but it is huge in terms of the impact. Yeah, let me, let me just give you some examples of what that means. Yeah, please. Uh, the, the ecosystems that we value around Australia and, and indeed in other parts of the world, um, they've adapted to the last 12,000 years um, when uh, the temperature was pretty steady. There were small ups and downs, but overall the temperature was plus or minus probably a half a degree. Mm. Um, and that was over 12,000 years. So suddenly, and suddenly in, in that time frame, suddenly in 50 to 70 years, they are experiencing rates of change that are, are over 100 times the background level. Now, ecosystems can't adapt. That's why the Great Barrier Reef is suffering mass bleaching. Yeah. That's why we see flying foxes dropping dead out of the skies. That's why we see fires raging in California, Greece, Sweden. Uh, that's why you see temperatures in the Arctic 30 degrees above normal. Uh, and and uh, natural systems can't cope with that. So this is why we're seeing such huge impacts already at about a one degree temperature rise. It's, it's the, the one degree is already 25% of the difference between an ice age and a warm period. But the rate at which this is occurring is overwhelming the capacity of natural ecosystems to adapt. Yeah. And so, like, just to, to help us understand, because we, well, most of us aren't scientists, um, you say, you know, we talk about uh, the one degree change, but then what we see in the news is, like, as you just said, you know, 30 degrees above sea level, uh, above regular temperatures um, and, uh, you know, um, yeah. all that kind of stuff. So how, because 30 seems like a whole lot more than one. So can you explain yeah. that? Okay, what, so what, what happens there is, is that um, in addition to just an average of one over um, you know, uh, a long period of time over the whole planet, you see very much larger regional and short-term shifts. Gotcha. Uh, so, so basically what's happening in the Arctic is that it is warming uh, a little bit more than double the global average. So in the Arctic, the base warming is already two degrees up there. Um, but then, because of the destabilization of the jet stream, occasionally you get um, huge variations of extremely cold air coming south, as what hit the southeast U.S. a couple of years ago, in extremely warm temperatures being sucked up into the Arctic. And that's why you get these these temporary by temporary having a, you know, a couple of weeks of temperatures way above normal or way below normal in certain parts of the world. So, so basically what we're doing is destabilizing uh, the circulation systems uh, particularly of the atmosphere, uh, but also we're starting to see some changes in ocean circulation as well. That's much slower, uh, and that and that'll operate over longer periods of time. So one degree, if you like, is is just a a yardstick that we use for the planet as a whole. What you experience of where you sit over short periods of time can be much much greater than that um, because of of the way that the circulation patterns are also being destabilized. Gotcha. Um, and so when we destabilize the circulation patterns of the atmosphere, does that make the air less stable? I'm thinking about air travel and um, turbulence and things like, do we need to worry about all that kind of stuff? No, not really. What, what that means is, is over short periods of time, we're talking about a week or two. Okay. Uh, and so what that means is, is you're getting air flows that are probably operating at uh, 
reasonably normal speeds, but what you're getting is is a, a distribution of warm and cold air that is quite different from what it was a half a century ago. So you so uh, think think of a, a belt of, of winds that operate around the northern high latitudes um, that keep the, the cold air in the Arctic and the warm air for the south. That, instead of being rather nice and even around the globe, is now seeing big loops north and south, which is sucking warm air up into the Arctic and dragging cold air down into temperate zones. Now, you might feel a few bumps on the airplane, but, but you, you would pass through that, those jet streams fairly, fairly uh, quickly, I would think. So mm-hmm. you're, you're, we're looking at several weeks of, of erratic behavior of this, this jet stream. In fact, in Europe now, it's been a couple of months, it's been locked into a a uh, situation where you're getting extremely uh, warm temperatures uh, higher up in northern Europe. Uh, I was up in, in Sweden in June, and it was incredibly warm. In May, they were hitting, I think in May, they hit over 30 degrees Celsius, and this is in Sweden. Crazy. Yeah, and they've had massive forest fires up there because of that, and, and normally those forests don't burn all that much. No, when I saw bushfires in Sweden and Greece, I was like, whoa, yeah. you know, there's some there's something really bad happening. This is this is not good, people. Um, so devastating, and uh, and you know, so much so much we can change. There really is, and I really do like to bring it back to a message of hope. Um, do you feel like, uh, as a scientist who looks at this stuff all the time, that we've possibly gone too far and we can't um, affect as much change as we we should or need to? Well, the, the way I would put it is um, uh, we've done ourselves an enormous disservice by not actually listening to the science a couple of decades ago. That's very start- diplomatic of you, Will. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 starting, and starting to uh, decarbonize back then because it would have been um, much easier, much more gradual. We would have handled it much better. Now, I think we can still do it, but the window of um, stopping what we're talking about in this new paper, of stopping the potential of crossing a planetary threshold, that window is closing very fast. Mm. Um, and by that I mean if we actually don't have policies in place and a, and a real determination and decision across all political parties that we're going to do this, if we don't have that in place in the next couple of years, I think we're going to really lose the chance, last chance to, to stabilize our climate at a climate we can live in. Right. Um, so- so how do we make this a non-political issue? Because what bugs me massively is that this seems to be like a hippie left liberal situation that, you know, to care about the, the climate or to mention climate change, you have to be a lefty. How do we make this transcend politics? Like what, what can we do to make everybody realise that this should be the overarching theme by which we run every other um, decision we make? Yeah, no, that's a really good point. That's exactly the, the what we need to take. Um, it's 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 really hard as a natural scientist to understand why this happens. The only observation I would make is having lived in, in Sweden for six and a half years, their political system is vastly different. And it's built on consensus and, and working across parties. They have seven or eight parties. No one ever gets a majority uh, in parliament. And the Swedes make sure that's the case by splitting their votes around, which means three or four parties will always have to talk, not necessarily the same ones. Uh, and issues like this, they make as bipartisan. Right. So no matter which collection of three or four parties govern Sweden, they basically are already about 50% renewable and, and are driving it down even more because they agreed that they're going to do this and, the, and, and they agreed that 
not only is this something they have to do, uh, they realize if they do it in a smart way, they're going to benefit their economy as well. Our political culture isn't that way. We're adversarial. Uh, it would be lovely if we could have a, a coalition of several parties uh, across the political spectrum that actually govern Australia, and they talk to each other and they talk to the public. Um, and maybe we could get over some of these thorny issues which have become uh, erroneously bipartisan issues. Because mm, it's the same in the States. Oh, the States is terrible. It, but, well, the States are like a hyper version of us, yeah. yeah. But, you, you know, we came close because in 2007, um, Malcolm Turnbull, who was leader of the opposition at that time, really was in, in, I think, pretty serious discussions with Kevin Rudd about let's take this off the political agenda and get moving on climate change. And, of course, we know what happened to Mr. Turnbull. He was turfed out by his own party, and things have gone pear-shaped since then. Mm. And we've never recovered from that, unfortunately. Yeah, and so do you think um, – so, ha like, does the average – but can we write letters? You know, I, I really want to feel like we can all do something to help whoever it is we vote for or whoever is currently in leadership – realize um that, that that their vote won't count that you know they won't be getting voted for if they don't put climate as a priority yeah what, what do you think one of the most powerful things the everyday person can do is the, the everyday person needs to get um active politically this is a collective action problem mm. and you do your own thing by reducing your own energy usage and so on but the system needs to change that's the only way it'll it'll really be effective at a large scale yeah so we need to send the message just as you said to politicians on uh, all sides of politics that unless you get a backbone on climate change and decide to do something meaningful, uh, we're not going to vote for you. We're going to vote you out uh, and make that clear to, to um, politicians right across the spectrum. Mm. And how do we get people who feel that we're kind of backed into a corner and we have to use coal for the economy and for jobs, you know, because there's that scare tactic that people that often leadership will use to make people think that all oh, the jobs will go if we vote for green energy. And, and, uh, and I just think that is the thinnest argument. Unfortunately, it's a very uneducated argument. But how do we get that to... Um, how do we get to the average everyday person to realize that all the jobs won't go? They're just going to go somewhere else. Yeah, um, look, I think there are a lot of models out there you can look at in other parts of the world. Yeah, interesting. And did within Australia. Um, I'm very fortunate to live in Canberra uh, where our government's really been on the front foot. So the ACT government um, about around 2011 or so said we will be 100% renewable by 2020. Um, and that will reduce our emissions by 40% in the territory. So, um, and at the time, there was real nervousness about how we're going to do this. It's going to kill the economy and so on. Well, we have achieved it. Um, all the contracts have been signed for solar and wind, and uh, we have pretty much the cheapest electricity prices in Australia. Hasn't killed our economy. In fact, it's generated income uh, with wind companies. A couple of them have moved their headquarters here. We're setting up training schemes and so on. So the territory's done actually very well, um, and we will achieve a 40% emission reduction by 2020. Um, and now we're going to tackle the other sectors of our economy, uh, and the government now is laying out plans for becoming totally carbon neutral by 2045. Mm -hmm. Now, when you look at, at our emissions profile, that would keep us within a two-degree target. If, everybody, if everyone copied the ACT, um, Australia could, could do its share to cap uh, cap the temperature rise at at probably under two degrees. Wow, so that's yes, extremely it, positive, isn't it? Really, absolutely. People need to look at those examples. They need to look at South Australia. They need to look at California. They need to look at the Nordic countries. 
and so on. Those countries who have decided they're going to do something, and when they when they set out to do it, they find out first of all you can do it, and second of all the co-benefits probably outweigh uh, the adjustments that need to be made economically. Mm. Amazing, and um, okay, so. A little example of a fundraiser that I was a part of giving a talk, a, a bunch of us got together and uh, we all raised money for a, um, a, a protesting group who were going against a coal mine proposition, a uh, Korean-owned coal mine up in the, on the central coast. And we all got together and all of us getting together meant we raised 17 grand for these people to go and um, fight against this and, uh, you know, get legal uh, support and all of that kind of stuff. Are these the sorts of things that we all need to be organising to do or like when we see that someone's organising to do it, we buy that ticket and we support it? Is, is that what grassroots action looks like um, to, to get people to realise we just don't want more dirty energy being, um, um, being used? Yeah, that's a really good example because what, what that is is putting your effort into a collective action, i.e., say, a legal action or, or political pressure, say, on, on unconventional gas development in the Northern Territory or WA or wherever. Mm. Uh, I, I think that's what needs to be done because if, if you say, well, this is such a huge, complicated problem, can we actually distill out and makes, make it more manageable? The answer is yes, and the first thing you can do is to say no new fossil fuel developments. Any new fossil fuel development is completely inconsistent with meeting the Paris targets and stabilizing the climate. So here you have something that's really practical. Any proposal, be it Adani, which is huge, or even smaller ones, whether it's coal, ga uh, gas, or whatever, simply, simply oppose it. Legally, political pressure, whatever. Because the only way, the only way will ever solve this climate change issue is to get out of fossil fuels. And that means no new fossil fuels. They're incompatible uh, with effective action on climate change. Mm. Awesome. That, that makes me feel happy because those are the sorts of things that everyone can play a part in that. You don't even need to be one of the speakers. You don't even need to be one of the activists. You could just buy the ticket to go to whatever the talk is about or, you know, and everyone then gets to feel like they, they're useful. Absolutely. And, and, and those, those people who are living in rural areas support the, the farmers who are saying lock the gate. We don't want unconventional gas development. Mm. But, and the indigenous people are saying the same thing. Yeah, that's a huge issue. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about um, the impact of gas? You know, we often talk about petroleum um, and we seem a bit more versed in, in that side of things. But let, let's talk gas for a little bit. Yeah, well, ga gas is often uh, talked about as a bridging fuel from coal. Mm -hmm. uh, that may have been true 20 years ago. It's not true now. You don't need any bridging f fuel. You just go directly to renewables. Yeah. So, so that's a furphy. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 and the second thing is, is that uh, although on average burning gas would emit about half the amount of CO2 as burning coal, uh, that's just a general average for the same amount of energy, it still is an enormous amount of CO2, and, and it still raises uh, the global temperature by burning uh, gas. So why would you do that when you can directly go to renewables, uh, battery storage, smart grids, at a cost that's uh, similar to or even less than gas? Well, the only reason it's being pushed is the gas industry wants to keep itself in business, um, which, is, which is natural in our economic system. Yeah, so, of course. That's that's something that we need to simply address, to say, no, you cannot stay in business. 
And we need to find ways to help the people who are in that business to become re-employed, retrained, and so on. I am so glad you said that, Will, because so often, you know, we, we, we just talk about what's right and what's wrong, but then we don't talk about tactically how we shift as a society, protecting jobs, protecting people's livelihoods, because, you know, to just close all the coal mines, like that's a huge ramification on thousands and thousands of family lives out there. But if we actually set up a strategic pathway to get them into renewable industries, then that's a, that's a really important conversation worth having. Absolutely. And, and, and I think that when you look at, at human, the human past, we've, we've had technological changes sweeping across our societies for forever, really. Mm. Oh, so, my, my own dad was affected by this when overnight we went from film camera, and he was in the film camera business, to digital, and it nearly wiped an entire industry out. Yeah. Mm. And, and so I, I think wise societies actually use um, uh, public money to help retrain, help communities, and so on. They do that in Sweden mm. uh, when they have structural adjustments in their economy rather than fight it. Uh, like the U.S. seems to be doing now with Mr. Trump. Uh, they say, look, that's the way the economy is going. That's the way technology is going. But we actually need to support people who are affected by this to retrain, uh, move into new developing industries rather than the old ones. We need to do the same thing with fossil fuels. We need to support people who will be affected by the closure of coal mines, closure of gas and so on, and train them for jobs in renewables or other parts of the new um, economy that's coming. Mm. And, you know, I mean, I think the Rockefeller family are a great example of um, hyper wealthy families realizing, you know, that actually this is not the way forward and let's divest now. These grandchildren are divesting and, and you know, building renewable funds. I think this is possible if we just acknowledge the facts and start to move cleverly into the right direction, then it means no one needs to lose or, you know, like lose a fortune. I think because a lot of people in our current economic model who are who have been made extremely wealthy by these sorts of industries, um, you know, there's, there's almost like a, a, there's sort of protection of the wealth at the expense of the health of our planet. Yep, that's right. And in fact, it, that's a nice way of saying that there are certainly very, very strong vested interests in the, in the um, contemporary well, in the way that we've we've generated electricity and, and uh, developed transport and so on over the past century. Uh, and and these people are the ones that are you know that are really uh, stumbling blocks. They're because, holding us up, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, and, and they stand. They absolutely do stand to lose, mm. unless the smartest of them actually say, "Wait a minute, we're wealthy. Maybe we should channel our investment somewhere else." Yeah. If we're forward looking as to where uh, technology is going, where society is going, where the economy is going, mm. so we, we really have to encourage that sort of of movement away from old technologies. Um, which are going to die anyway. But the problem is if they don't die soon enough, we're going to blow the climate out. That's yeah. the crunches. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay, so we need to keep it positive. <laughs> I, I laugh, otherwise I'd probably cry, right? Um, so in terms of – you've mentioned Sweden a few times. You've mentioned the amazing work that ACT are doing. Um, are there any other like amazing examples of people starting to shift in the right direction like even people who were huge champions for petroleum-based energy in the past who've made some really exciting steps um, and, and are now leading the charge. Is there anyone else that you'd like to share? 
There, there probably are, but I'm not the best person to talk oh, to. Oh, okay. That's okay. Since, since I, I spend a lot of my time thinking about the fundamental science. Yeah, I, will, yes. I will say one thing, though, that that I think a group that uh, has really shown some some um, wisdom in all this are uh, the farmers around Australia, particularly the young farmers, who completely understand what climate, what the risk climate change is presenting for their livelihood. Uh, out in the bush, and they also understand uh, the risks that are posed, safe by unconventional gas, uh, by coal, and so on, and are now starting to become more vocal to say, if if you want a future in the bush, we're going to have to do something about climate change. Um, other groups like like the firefighters who uh, play a really important role in our society because bushfires have been been with us forever, but they're getting worse. They're coming out and saying, wait a minute, some of these fires we can't fight because they become so big and so intense. And that's because of uh, the influence of climate change. We can't even deal with them. So I think we're getting respected segments of society starting to come out and say, we can see the changes. We can see the impacts. We can see the risks. Mm. Uh, and they're just not worth it. Let's get climate change under control. Mm. So I think that's uh, that's growing around the country and in other parts of the world, too, that that um, people like insurance companies are speaking out. You know, we can't insure this anymore. Uh, so many uh, Houses are being lost, uh, you know, due to uh, tropical cyclones and all this sort of stuff. So I think there are voices coming out. Uh, but the problem is the the entrenched um, power groups, particularly in the energy systems, are so strong politically and economically that so far they're reasonably successful in resisting a lot of the change that needs to happen. Mm. And you mentioned a paper before, the latest paper. Uh, yeah. you, uh, you said it in passing a couple of times. What is this paper and what what's in there? Well, it has a bit of a geeky title. Oh, yeah. It's called Trajectories of the Earth System mm -hmm. in the Anthropocene. Oh, wow. Okay. But, but if I could boil it down, what it's saying is the uh, predominant sort of framework for climate change is that the major driver of climate change is human emissions of greenhouse gases, particularly from burning of fossil fuels. That's the main game. And so far, it indeed has been the main game. But what we're saying is, is when you look at how the Earth actually operates – there are intrinsic feedbacks in the system that can accelerate warming. So far, they've been very quiet. They're very stable. But as we humans increase temperature, we're starting to activate um, natural feedbacks in the system. Uh, a good example of this is, is increased fire in the Amazon and up in the northern forest. Another example is melting permafrost. Uh, another example is, is melting of the ice over the North Pole in the summertime. All of these accelerate climate change either by putting more carbon in the air or diminishing ice, which reflects sunlight. So um, we're arguing in this paper that when you look at the Earth as a single system, there may be a planetary threshold beyond which the system simply goes out of our control. And even if we reduce emissions back down towards zero, the planet will keep warming for quite some time. So um, if we're right, and, and there's a lot of evidence from past behavior of the Earth and from contemporary changes in the Earth that we could be right, uh, then there's a really, really strong argument for not going past the Paris targets because that gets you into very risky territory indeed. So, so in a nutshell, that's what this paper is about. And who who do you present it to? Is it is it a case of then um, uh, starting to go to governments and seeing who bites and who wants to work more proactively? Like how, what's the next step once a paper like this gets published? Well, it's interesting in, in this in this day and age because it was published uh, a bit over a week ago mm -hmm. uh, in a very prestigious journal, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the U.S. 
and it's it's got it's gone viral uh, in the media globally. You know, things like the Guardian, the um, New York Times, um, BBC. Here in Australia, the ABCs picked it up. All of mm. the major and so on. So it's it's getting that, getting that sort of attention. So we're hoping it it obviously triggers some discussions amongst policymakers as to what this implies, and also we hope it triggers further research to to test these ideas. Um, uh, in more depth that we're putting forward in this paper. Amazing. Yeah, my sister shared it. I think it was beginning was it beginning of last week? Yeah. And uh, and yeah, just incredible incredible um it's very heavy, isn't it? You know, I think it's it's I think that's one of the key tricks. Like I I'm an educator in the space of just waking us all up to all the little changes we can make positively in our day-to-day to reduce toxin exposure, to impact our, our planet, um, to gift a better planet to our kids when we go. And I'm always obsessed with how we take these huge pieces of like a lead balloons that land in our laps and you just go, whoa, this is big, and, and distill that down to people actually being able to feel um, empowered in, in their role in um, in you know affecting enough change yeah no that, those are really good points and one of the things we do try to do in the paper is put a section at the end on um uh, what humans could, what are the responses what could and should humans do to to deal with this and and it's multi-level it's it's obviously technologies like renewables and so on mm-hmm. um but it's also protecting the natural carbon sinks and on the planet things like the f- tropical forests, like the northern forests, and so on so stop deforestation which is really actually very important in terms of stabilizing these these biosphere thresholds and tipping points but it also goes all the way to fundamental human values and you've touched on this a bit you know what sort of planet do we really want to pass on to our children and grandchildren uh, and and that certainly is more important than maximizing profit in the- <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, and, it, it, and, and marketing and consuming more and all this stuff that seems to now happen at hyper speed. Um, so we really need to ask ourselves some serious questions. Do we have our values set right? Uh, and do we have our is our economy fit for purpose for the challenges of the 21st century? My answer is absolutely not. It's the problem, not the solution. Uh, so we've got to rethink, I think, really much more carefully. Um, how we organize our lives and so on, and what values we really ascribe to. So I'm hoping that in this paper it, it, it focuses attention back to those fundamental issues because unless we tackle those, I don't think we're going to solve the, uh, the climate change issue. Mm, it, yeah, it really is going to – it demands the biggest picture thinking I think we've used yet really because, yeah. yeah, change across the, like the fundal way we decide to build a value system. That's right. And the interesting thing is, of course, we've faced huge challenges before, but it's been more immediate. For example, like um, uh, the Second World War. Mm. Uh, those, were, those were immediate challenges to, to Western democracies. And, of course, they responded by completely transforming economies in five or ten years to, to uh, carry out the war effort. This is more insidious because it's actually created um, by our own systems, today's mm. uh, systems. It's, it's sort of like um, a long fuse big bang problem in that the fuse slowly burns and you don't feel the bang yet. Uh, but, but we scientists are warning you there's a massive bang out there if you don't get it under control. Mm-hmm. So it's psychologically, I think, for humans to deal with this. Ah, so I'm just drawing an analogy in my mind. You know, we, we talk a lot about health topics uh, in, uh, in the community. And for me, it's like, 
the World War II example is like having a heart attack. It's like, boom, yeah. you know, you've got this massive problem, you know, you've got to completely change your lifestyle. It's very definitive. But climate change is like an autoimmune disease where it's, it's, it's less intense. It's, it never, you know, a lot of autoimmune diseases are quite quiet on the burn and you have a niggle here or a little thing here and what a pain about that sore knee that keeps getting inflamed, but never enough to really make you go, whoa, we've really got to do something here. And, um, and I feel like the, our, our greatest skill as humanity is going to be to see that fuse burning and, and pay attention to it before it explodes um, it, it's very hard, you know, humanity, we love a big apocalyptic, you know, moment to have to change. We're all very good at responding to those, but the slow burning, oh yeah, we probably should get round to that. We're not so great at that, are we? No, that's, that's a really good analogy. I think uh, health analogies are really good in a way. Um, another health related analogy might be that, that you can decrease or increase, uh, the risk of cancers, for example, by, mm -hmm. life, by lifestyles. So when you're younger, you can you can uh, reduce the risk of cancer later in your life uh, by dietary changes or lifestyle changes. You don't feel anything while you're doing those changes. You probably don't feel anything for a couple of decades, but you are changing your risk profile. Uh, and that's the sort of thing we're talking about here is that, you know, we've got some really big risks out there for the habitability of the planet for, for humans. Uh, and... You don't feel it too much now, although when you look around at the severity of what's happening to natural ecosystems like the Great Barrier Reef or the increasing intensity of bushfires, I'm hearing more and more people saying, gee, we've never seen anything like this before. It's like your body is getting some pretty serious niggles mm -hmm. and you're still ignoring them. So I think that's that's a good analogy. And, and I think we're getting enough uh, aches and pains in the in the <laughs> system yeah. that's, that we should pay attention and, and say, look, you, your planetary physicians, that's us scientists, are actually telling you that unless you change now, you are headed for a very uh, nasty end of life. Mm, that's, that, I think that's the clincher really, isn't it? That's, um, yeah. that's the quote that's going on social media from this chat. It really just helps people go, ah, okay, let's see the client sci climate scientists as our global doctor, you know, and this is yeah. the big warning sign that is – such a, you know, sometimes you need to talk for 40 minutes to get to these moments, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, one of the best quotes I heard, just to throw this in, on our paper was um, someone asked a, a colleague of ours in the UK, a scientist, to say, aren't these scientists crying wolf yet again? And his response was, no, they're showing us that the wolves are in sight. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. That, that was, was good yeah, 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 very good. Um. Tell me, Will, why do we not, um, why do clients, climate scientists not talk so much about factory farming and the impact on climate change? Do, is that something that is on your radar when you put together these, um, these when you do your work? Or Yeah, it, 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 it is. And there is quite a bit about it. When you um, read the literature, mm. we, we talk about, um, say, non-fossil um, fuel yeah. emissions. Um, missions of methane and nitrous oxide are really important. Um, methane because it's an extremely potent gas. Nitrous oxide because it also is, but nitrous oxide has a very long lifetime in the atmosphere. And these mainly come from agriculture and uh, from both fertilization but also from animal farming. 
So yeah, there is a big, big emphasis on on um, completely rethinking how we, uh, what food we eat, how we grow the food, and so on. So although although the sort of immediate thing is, you know, we've just got to get fossil fuels under control. Yeah. Uh, simultaneously, the next the next probably two biggest things are agriculture mm. and animal agriculture figures very big, very hugely there, and also transport how we move ourselves around and do we need to travel so much and all this sort of thing. Mm. Those, those are big ticket items for sure. Yeah, I so struggle with the transport one because I'm, an, I'm part of an international family. I love my family and they live literally all over the world. And, uh, and I do, you know, I, I find that hard. It's like I saw someone tearing down uh, Leonardo DiCaprio for his private jet because, you know, like of the disconnect between putting together an incredible film on climate change and then riding around the world in a private jet. And I'm like, oh, I travel a lot too, but yeah. I care about the, pla- the planet. But, yeah, we scientists travel a lot too. Mm. So uh, same thing can apply to us. Um, and I think what we what we need is is um, a very integrated approach. Um, if if you look at travel, still by far the, the biggest biggest polluters are um, private vehicles. Yeah, bigger than the airline industry. Um, shipping is growing with the popularity of, of cruise ships and so on, and they tend to use very um, dirty diesel fuels uh, in shipping. Oh wow! Just being pumped out into the ocean. Well, no, when they burn it, it burns a lot of CO two. Mm, okay. So, uh, Dirty, we mean it, they they are not very efficient. Yeah, and and the reason they can use that is because weight isn't a consideration. They can take on less efficient fuels. Where on aircraft, um, efficiency is hugely important because you want to reduce the weight you need to carry. So they use very efficient um, fuels by comparison on aircraft. Okay. But if, but if you want to look at transport, um, the way I look at it is first of all. You need to decarbonize ground transport, and we're on the way to doing that. Um, electric vehicles are um, they're really surging now in, in both their popularity and also the drop in cost of them and so on. So that's very positive. Um, there's been a resurgence of public transport in cities, particularly rail-based, um, uh, light rail-based transport, uh, which in Canberra's case, we're putting in a light rail system. That's run on 100% renewable, so there's no emissions associated with that transport. Uh, active transport, cycling and walking is increasing. Uh, so I think what we need to do is decarbonize ground transport is pri- priority one. That also means getting rid of short-haul uh, air traffic and replacing it with high-speed rail run on renewable. Yes, please. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that would then that would cut that down to we still need um, air transport, particularly in a, a country like Australia, which is very, uh, very widespread. But you don't need air transport between Sydney, Canberra, and Melbourne, for mm, sure. No. That's an enormous amount of our aviation. Absolutely. And Europeans just laugh at the fact that we don't have a fast train between those three. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so I still do a fair bit of work in the Nordic countries, and I always take trains between Copenhagen and Stockholm and uh, Yatabori, the second city in Sweden, and those sort of things. You don't even think about flying. In, no. In- it's like as soon as the Eurostar was available, that's, that's what we yeah. took between – France and England, never again traveling by plane. Yeah. Mm. So, so, so we simply need to uh, convince the airline industries that they should actually become high-tech transport companies. Uh, and, and perhaps you would have a, a Sydney-Melbourne high-speed trade with a Qantas number on it. Uh, and uh, it would be flying along the ground, so to speak. Yeah. We need to think outside the box like that. That would leave then um, the niche for biologically-based aviation fuels um, which are going to take some time to develop. 
they are under development, leave those for the long-haul flights, which you really can't do by by train or ground transport. I mean, that's the sort of thinking you need is a system-level approach to how do we get uh, carbon out of the transport system. Mm. And do you feel like we've got enough brilliant minds working on this as we speak? We we have, on the research side, Mm. probably yes. On the institutional, political, um, private sector side, the company side, no. Not yet. Uh, because uh, to be fair to them, they are still driven by the wrong economic levers. Mm. Uh, the, the short-term profit cycle is the problem. Uh, and, and that goes right back to um, institutions and values. If we change it so it actually makes sense for airline companies to invest in high-speed rail, say, between Sydney and Melbourne, then it will happen. But um, we've we got to get those, those uh, incentive systems, those economic um, frameworks right that it makes – that, that airlines can make more money by putting in a high-speed rail than they can by flying airplanes between Sydney and Melbourne. Ooh, that's a good little big-picture thought. I love that because, yeah, basically what we're saying is what we are playing a short game as a society, not, not you personally, not me, but we as a society as an economic model are playing a short game, but our planet requires us to play a long game, and yep. therein lies the disconnect that we're yep. currently experiencing. Mm. And I keep con- confronting economists uh, that I talk to, virtually all of them, simply don't have a clue as to the nature of the problem we're facing uh, and what needs to be done. There are some really good inventive economists, but they're out on the edge. They're not mainstream economists. And they have some fantastic solutions, but they need to become mainstream. And, and that's uh, a big challenge that we face. Yeah. And I will share a couple of amazing TED Talks on how we build green economies um, because there are, as you say, some incredible minds in that space and, uh, and we need to get them out of the fringes. Absolutely. Um, Will, just to finish on a, a really positive note, if you could suggest three things that the average everyday person could do in their everyday lives to start playing a bigger game when it comes to climate that would still fit within the capability of someone leading an everyday life. Um, what, what would your suggestions be, your top suggestions? Yeah, the number one suggestion would be something we already talked about, and, and that is uh, getting involved in collective action, yeah. uh, being, it, being it write a letter to your politician, go visit your local uh, member of parliament and tell him or her that, you, that we want you to take action on climate change support, get up, the climate council, things like that you can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, yes, second of all, there are things you can do personally. But I think unless you take that top-level action, we're not going to solve the problem. Right. But second of all, you can be a, a model for how you can uh, live without consuming so much, uh, without uh, burning so many fossil fuels and so on. Good examples around Canberra, which I see are a lot of people are putting on solar PV. In fact, Australia in general has the highest uptake of rooftop solar PV. People can do that. It makes sense. People I talk to say, we're saving money on this great idea. Um, walk and cycle. Uh, it, helps your, it helps your health, helps your mm. fitness, uh, and it's a great way to get around. It gets cars off the roads in cities. Uh, so I think that's really, really important too. Um, and second of all, uh, third of all, I think this value issue is really important. Just talk to your neighbors, your friends, your families about, gee, how can we, we uh, start changing our lives uh, that, that in ways that are going to make us uh, psychologically happier, physically healthier, uh, and, uh, and reduce our stress on, on the planetary environment. Mm, beautiful advice. Thank you so much. 
uh, Professor Will Steffen. What a what an inspiring chat. You know, we did talk about some pretty intense things there. The situation is definitely dire. There's no mistaking it. But there is so much we can do. So I really appreciate you taking time out of what is a very busy mission you're on and uh, and joining us to demystify some of the complicated messages that are out there and really just focusing on what's so important for us. Thank you, Alex. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to today's show. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoy having these conversations and bringing them to you. Now, where can you find me and Lotox Life from here on in? Well, you've obviously got lotoxlife.com. And there we have everything beautifully organized into food, home, body, and mind topics, as well as kids, and a whole bunch of free downloadables and resources to help you, inspire you to take community action. And there's amazing A to Z recipes there if you're ever getting a little bit stale in the kitchen and a whole bunch of articles that I've written. You can also find me on Instagram at Lotox Life and also on Facebook by a page the same name. I make everything super easy, Lotox Life. So you can find it really, really simply. Thank you so much to everybody who leaves a five-star review over on Stitcher or iTunes or wherever it is that you tune into the show. And also to let you know that you can join us on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Lotox Life and come join the private Lotox Life Club. In there, over time, more and more cool stuff is about to be added. It's a place where we can continue the conversations, chat about the weekly show, you're going to get bonus Q&A and all sorts of things over time. I explain everything over on Patreon, so I encourage you to check that out. And in the meantime, I'll see you next week. Music.